0: Is that not a great session of worship right there to to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? I so enjoyed that this morning. Yeah. Thank you, Praise and Worship team. My name is Kendall. I'm a visitor here at East Columbus. (laughs) Amen. Wow. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be back. We were talking this morning. It's actually been since August since I've been able to be here and worship with you. But I certainly appreciate our leadership allowing me to go to uh, Brazil and help out at Carbon in Brazil um, the last, what, six weeks or so, I guess. So I've uh, really had a good time there, and so you know, because I know many of you have been praying for Jeff, Ron's brother. Um, he, is, he is long. Uh, he actually walked up the aisle last week at church, um, and that was just amazing. And uh, they, uh, they have Mark Weiss with them, uh, singing and in, in worship with them today. And then next week, Jeff is going to try to get back in the pulpit and preach. So keep that in your prayers because he needs the energy especially uh, to be able to do those uh, two churches. It's good to be back with you and, and to be involved with this sermon series of Thrive. I know Ron kicked it off last week, and, and we're talking about thriving in a variety of different ways. And we want to be building a community on this corner of Indiana and Mar, a community that is going to flourish for the kingdom of God. Today we're going to talk about thriving through generosity. And I really appreciate my dearest friend, brother Ron, Uh, who arranged it so he would go sing today and I would be the one to preach to you about the generosity of giving. Yeah, thanks a bunch for that, Ron. And I hear he threw me under the bus last week, so uh, we'll we'll see about that. If you have your Bibles with you, I trust you do. If not, you can follow along on the screen. We're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 12. And I'm just going to dive in reading verses 1 through 8 this morning. Six days before the Passover... Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his scripture this morning. A little bit of just the beginning, the introduction, and and a little bit of this message. A little bit of our series uh, is based on a book by Craig Rochelle uh, that's called Christian Atheist. Those two words don't seem to really go together, do they? But in that title of that book, in Craig's view, uh, he outlines the definitions of what an atheist, a Christian, and a Christian atheist are. He says, an atheist, obviously we know, is one who believes that there is no God. There is no supreme being. There is no creator. And I will make my choices and decisions based on risk versus reward. I I will decide for my life what is best for me and what I'm going to get out of it. Christian, on the other hand, is a person that says, I believe there is God. I believe there is only one God. I I believe he is the supreme maker. I believe he is the creator. And I believe he loves us so much that he was willing to send a part of him, his only begotten son, down to earth in order to be a bridge for fallen man Man and women who come up short on a daily basis and are covered with sin, he allowed his son to come down and be a bridge to build a relationship through Jesus that would reconcile us back to that one supreme God, the Creator. A Christian atheist, on the other hand, is someone who calls themselves one thing, but their behavior doesn't reflect either one. Interesting thought. Christian atheist. I believe this, but my life doesn't show that, doesn't live it out. And I think if most of us are honest, if we're really to really look down deep in our heart, there's many times in our lives that we could fall in that Christ, Christian atheist mode. <laughs> We, we like to pick and choose. We like to go to the a la carte line of what we want to do in obeying what the Word says sometimes and get this stigma from the world that we're hypocrites and that they don't want any part to do with us because we simply have too many Christian atheists amongst us. A Christian atheist is one that says, I believe, but my life doesn't reflect that. So we know we don't want to be that way, right? We want to we be we want to be more like this is who I am based upon my beliefs, of what I believe. I, I think if we look at a, a variety of things, but if we pinpoint, there is one area of our lives that this is really amplified, and, and that can be the area of money. Uh, It can be in the area of how do we deal with the stuff that we are blessed with. I I looked up, just by Google search, by the way, so you know it's true. But I looked up most expensive weddings. I wanted to see what some people might have been paying for a wedding. And the most expensive one that I found was back when Prince Charles and Princess Diana got married. They spent 48 million dollars on their wedding. Michael Jordan when he married uh Yvette Prieto spent about 10 million dollars on his wedding. That the list went on and on and on a lot of popular people that you would know and recognize and and uh a lot of them in uh the, you know the 3 million dollar range or whatever but uh it it also spurred me to think about something that I had heard Phil Ling talk about. Phil Ling is the founder of the Giving Church that we're working with on our campaign drive and he talked about a time when he was um at his grandma's uh, house at the time uh but but he was reading an article out of People magazine. Again, you know it's true, right? So this article on people, manny he said he just got, he was on the edge of his seat reading about this article because it was about the Clintons and how much money the Clintons were going to spend on Chelsea Clinton's wedding. And the article went on to say that they were anticipating spending between 3 to $5 million on Chelsea's wedding. Now, there, there's there's a lot of research out there. Some say it was in that $3 million range, but this article was trying to say before you think, oh, that's that's way out of hand or whatever, they actually only spent high six figures. So that ought to make you feel a little better, right? The same article reported that the amount spent, average amount spent on a wedding in the United States is around $25,000. Now, at first I thought, no way. There's no, and then I started thinking about some people, some of our friends that we have attended the wedding, and they're, they're good enough friends that I've had the conversation, and one that came to my mind, I know they said they spent about $28,000, and another one that was here in this community was right at $40,000. I want you to know and understand that early on in Sandy and I's marriage, when our girls were little, I started trying to bribe them from day one. I will give you money, just go elope, it's okay. I, I mean, yeah, you laugh at it, haven't we all thought, wow, what could that money go toward, right? I mean, that money could be used for, to, to help buy a house. That money could be used for a down payment on this. That money could be invested and worth so much uh, over the course of so many years. Why not a simple wedding? Why not save the money? Put that down payment on a house. And and by the way, I will say that although they didn't take me up on it, they were very good stewards of the money and had, you know, really nice weddings and they they were cognizant of what they were doing and, and we do appreciate that as well. But here's my point. It's easy for us to start judging how somebody else spends their money. Isn't it? I mean, we do it all the time. It's easy for us to sit back and decide with what somebody else is doing whether that's extravagant or not. It's easy for us to sit back and say, well, that's too much. That's over the top. I mean, how about churches? You, you hear about a church in the community that's going to do that's going to build a new church, or you hear about churches that maybe are going to go in and buy these big buildings that are empty and they're going to renovate it and spend all this money on a new church and And we look back and say, "Are you serious? Are you really going to spend that much money on church?" And maybe it's not weddings Maybe it's not churches. If I can, let's just meddle for a second, for a moment. What about the money you spend on your hobbies? What about the money that's spent on a boat, on a camper, on those trips, on a motorcycle, on season tickets for the Cubs, although they have to pay you to come watch them play? He knew I'd get him back. He's going to watch that online. So, Or maybe your hobby's golf. I mean, I know a lot of us like to play golf, and if there's a membership involved or even a round of golf can, to some people, be expensive, maybe over the top. You see, it's easy to judge what others spend their money on until it gets in our own personal arena. And then we think differently. What I want you to see is in this story this morning. In this biblical story. Because in this story is a great snapshot of how God sees it. Because we get to hear it through the words of Jesus. And I got to tell you, I've read the story and heard it many times and even heard messages on it. But in studying it this week, some things really came me that I'd never really looked at the angle or, or this, this story in this manner before. You see, Jesus is being honored by a family who is just enthralled with what he's done for them. I mean, they just can't believe it. They're overwhelmed by what Jesus has done. And, and so they want to do something really special for him. And so they, they decide to have a dinner party in his honor. Now, now, no one understands when this story is taking place. It's not going to be. It's a matter of days before Jesus is going to get arrested. But at the time this party is taking place, at the time this dinner is taking place, they have no idea that Jesus is going to be betrayed, that Jesus is going to get arrested, that Jesus is going to be crucified. They're looking at it in the now. And in the now, this is a great celebration. In the now, this is huge to have Jesus in their home and be able to celebrate with him the things that he's done for them. They don't know what's going to happen. we, We read the story in John, but if we look at a part of it in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, verse 3, I want you to pick up on this part of it. It says, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Now we know where he is. Now we know whose house it is. Now we know who is putting on the party. Okay? Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured perfume on his head. Okay, so we know we're in the home of Simon the leper. Now let's think about that for a second. Simon the leper was a leper. That was the worst disease you could have in their culture. I mean, it was a disease that ate you from the inside out. It was a disease that just filled your entire body with open sores to, to the point where most, a lot of people, would become so disfigured with those sores that you couldn't recognize who they were. It was a disease that when you had that disease and as you're walking along, you you had to be covered up as much as possible. And when you were approaching someone, when they were within such a distance from you, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean. Don't get close to me. I'm sick. I've got a disease that's probably not going to be healed. But Jesus healed Simon the leper from his disease. Can can you imagine how excited Simon the leper is to be able to throw a dinner party for the guy that cleared him, cleansed him from that disease? I mean, he just had to have this smile on his face. I mean, his life has been restored to him. And then we know that we have Mary and Martha and Lazarus brothers, a brother and two sisters that were obviously very special to Jesus. They were family friends. We know they were friends. You read it through all the Gospels that Jesus was, you know, dealing with them. They were probably huge supporters of the ministry. But at the time this has taken place, what had happened just previously, not too long ago, was the fact that Jesus was gone, Lazarus gets sick, Mary and Martha sin for Jesus, he doesn't get there quick enough, and their brother Lazarus dies. And by the time Jesus gets there, he's been dead for four days and already put into the tomb, and the tomb has been sealed. They've already anointed his body and put him in that tomb. And it's kind of an intense moment when Jesus gets there and says, don't worry, he's only sleeping. And they're looking at him and like, do what? He's been dead for four days. He's been buried, sealed in a tomb for four days because you didn't get here in time. And we have that beautiful picture of Jesus wanting them to unseal the tomb, but finally just, in this conversation, he finally just yells out and says, Lazarus, come out! And the next picture we get is Lazarus walking out of that tomb. Lazarus is at the party. you got Simon the leper who's been cleansed of his leprosy. You've got Lazarus who has been raised from the dead. Sitting around this table at this dinner party. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to hang out with one of them and I want to talk with Simon the leper, that's a pretty neat deal, but I'm wanting to sit next to Lazarus. I've got questions. Bright light? No light. What, what was it? What was it like? Were, were you falling or were you not? Was, was it cold? Was it warm? You know, you got all kinds of questions to even be able to ask Lazarus at that moment. What I want you to know and understand was that's the setting. That's the emotionally charged event that is taking place. Martha, it tells us, was doing what Martha did. Martha was a servant, and Martha was serving. Lazarus was reclining. Simon is gleaming, being the host. And all of a sudden, Mary, who is sitting there taking all this in, is reflecting back to the time where she sat at Jesus' feet in their home, just wanting to learn and take in everything Jesus was teaching. And all of a sudden she gets this idea that I'm going to get up and excuse myself from the room and I'm going to go get that alabaster jar of nard, expensive perfume. She goes and gets it and she comes back in and breaks it open to start using it to anoint Jesus' body. Now, you know, Mark talks about anointing his head. John goes into she washed his feet. But she's anointing Jesus' body. This jar would have had the value of a year's worth of wages. The Bible tells us that. Expensive perfume. Perfume that wasn't just used on a daily basis. This is a type of perfume... We don't do this today, but you've got to know and understand that years ago and in their culture, it was up to the family to prepare the body for burial. So this is a jar that was set aside just for that moment. If we go back and read even what Jesus said there at the end, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You see how close Jesus was with this family? He knew that they were going to be the ones that would be possibly called to anoint his body. Now, he knew that that was never going to take place, but they didn't. So that's the kind of perfume, that's the kind of jar, that's the kind of expense, that's the kind of sentiment that Mary's doing when she goes to get this jar and come back and break it and start anointing Jesus' body. Now, this is what really hit me this week. She had already gone through one of those jars. They had anointed their brother's body. They had already used a flask of that perfume previous days before to prepare their brother's body for burial. And I can't help but think, I can't help but believe that as Mary is sitting there taking all this in and seeing Simon smile and seeing Lazarus kick back, knowing that he's, he's got life again, and, and she's talked to him, I know about his experience, right, and all this kind of thing, and she, she's reflecting back and thinking, you know what? One of the greatest things I ever did for my brother was when I, anoint, I used that oil to anoint his body. And not only did I anoint his body with that oil, I, 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 I cried tears that fell on his body while I was... That was the most beautiful thing I ever did for my brother. Why did I wait till he's dead? Why did I wait till he had died in order to do something like that for him? You know what? I've got a jar for Jesus I'm going to do it now. I'm going to do it while he's alive. And the Bible says that's what she did. And then she took it a step farther as, as, as she had been washing. And, and by the way, in that day, washing a visitor's feet, was, that was common. You know, they, they walked in sandals on these dusty roads and so forth. So washing the feet was common. Doing it with this perfume was not. And then she lets her hair down. And starts using her, I know that's a tough visual with me (laughs) up here. Mine would be the, the brush to kind of clean the nails or something. But she lets her hair down and starts to dry his feet. Now, someone once wrote that that would have been similar to someone, a lady in the Victorian era when they wore dresses that came all the way down to the floor being in public at a party like this and taking her dress and lifting it up to the top of her thigh. Whoa. What's she doing? That's what Mary is doing in front of the people here at this party. And then it says that the aroma from the perfume filled the room. Now let that take you back because I know each and every one of us has had some time in life that all, all of a sudden, if we want to think and we want to reflect, we can go back to a time in Grandma's house when she was baking an apple pie, and you can just pick that aroma up right now. I mean, you can experience that right now. I mean, I mean there's something, right? That this aroma filled the room. Everyone has a memory. And I think they were probably, think about that aroma. They know the perfume. They know that they've been through this once before when they anointed Lazarus' body. They know that smell. Probably everybody in the room at some point in time had prepared the body of a loved one to be buried, and now they have this smell. That's where their memory's going. That's what they're reflecting on. And Judas speaks up. Now, no one understand, we know Judas after the story is said and done. We know Judas when we say, and that's the rest of the story. They didn't. At this point, Judas is still a pretty cool guy. Judas is still a part of the ministry. Judas has been the one that's volunteered to be the treasurer. They don't know he's stealing at this point in time. Nobody but Jesus. In the room, Judas is pretty neat. He's pretty cool. And he speaks up and says, what a waste. We we could have used that. That's a year's worth of wages. We could have used that to feed the poor. But then the Bible is real quick to let us know that Judas really didn't care about the poor. That he only brought it up because he was a thief. And he was seeing how he could use that money for himself. Very neat story. Very neat story. So what's the life lessons that we can take out of it and what's the application that we can put into our lives? Life lesson number one. Our love and devotion for Jesus and for each other needs to be expressed while there is opportunity. We don't want to wait till it's too late. Be receptive when God touches our heart and prompts us to do something. When an opportunity comes about to be generous, we should be generous. Thomas Carlyle, a very well-known Scottish essayist, uh, was an introvert. He's just into his writing. He just wanted to write his essays all the time. And, and people were really surprised when he decided to get married. But he actually fell in love with his secretary and married his secretary. But he spent all of his time in his office writing, and he he, he never noticed that There was a time period where his wife was getting sick. Never even noticed it. And eventually his wife dies. And at the funeral, it's all such a shock to him because he had no clue. He had no idea because he was so enthralled with writing his essays, being in his library, being in his office all the time. But they go through the funeral and they go to the cemetery and, and she's buried and he returns home and goes into the room where she had spent her last few days and there laid her diary. And he picks up her diary and he opens it up to read it. And I would want to share with you two short excerpts from that diary. The first one is this. She wrote, Yesterday Thomas spent an hour with me. and It was like being in heaven. I love him so next page I have listened all day to hear my husband's footsteps to hear my husband's footsteps in the hall but now it is late and I guess he's too busy to come his friends say that he dropped the diary and ran straight back to the cemetery and he fell down in the dirt where she had been buried sobbing and crying out over and over, if I'd only known. If I'd only known. You see, some opportunities never come back around. Children grow up. Parents pass away. Friends move. Life's responsibilities change. But when you get or you feel the impulse to be generous, whatever the setting, be generous. That's what Jesus wants you to do. Number two, when you express love in an extravagant way, expect criticism. Judas's response is pretty normal, is it not? I mean, you can't tell me, especially when you were a young Christian and not really matured into the whole big picture and everything, that when you read the story and you heard what Judas said, you're kind of like, you know what? He's got a point there. Anybody ever read that and think, "Ah, that's true. A year, that that could feed a lot of people. I mean, Judas, his response seemed rational. But Jesus saw it differently. Jesus saw it as an opportunity to teach. Jesus saw it as a spiritual moment. Jesus saw it as a spiritual opportunity. And there are some opportunities that demand for us to be generous. The demand to do something extravagant. Let me pick up the wedding thing again for a second. Okay, just for a moment. In that same article in People magazine, and I don't have the quote, but in that same article in People magazine, there was actually a quote that talked about Weddings being a bad investment. Because one out of two of them end in divorce. That was the take of the article. It's a bad investment. So you should be careful about how you spend your money at a wedding. Because the chances are, you might get divorced anyway. Well, isn't that a pick-me-up? So next time you get invited to go to... This is wedding month, isn't it? We had a nice one yesterday with, with uh, Connor and Kendra and Sandy. And we have three next Saturday: three thirty, four thirty, and six thirty. We're going to eat really well next next Saturday. But maybe you know, the next time you're invited to somebody's wedding and you you need to stop and pick up a gift, maybe just stop by Seven Eleven or some convenience store or something. You know, it's I mean, don't go all out. I get something cheap. It might not last anyway, right? I mean, that's the take of this article. I mean, if you're out there and you're thinking about getting married right now or it's coming up or whatever, you might want to have a conversation. You might want to talk about it It's like, ah, honey. I mean, I know there's this diamond, but there's some gravel over here. They're both rocks. I mean, we don't know, right? Odds are 50-50. I say we go cheap. I mean, you don't do that. Nobody thinks that way going into it. It's important. It's significant. I think outside of accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, in my opinion, picking out a mate and getting married might be one of the biggest decisions that you'll ever make. So sometimes there are opportunities to do something generous. How about churches? start going to a church, and you really start to get involved, and, and next thing you know, you're wanting to get in on some of the ministries, and you want to serve, and, and you, you pick up on this, you should give your first fruits and, uh, of your labor, and you start doing that, and the next thing you know, you hear about this mission trip, and you want to go on that mission trip, and you go, and it changes your lives, and you, you, you're just all in, inevitably, You're going to have some friends or someone's going to say something to you at some point in time like, man, why do you have to be such a fanatic about it? I mean, are are you nuts? I mean, spending that kind of money on something like that? It's interesting to me that we live in a culture that looks at mission and ministry wonders how you can spend that much money on those type of things, but they don't blink an eye at Disney spending $54 million on trying to come up with a new ride at an amusement park. I, I mean, and they build this ride, and you go and you stand in line for two hours to ride it for maybe two minutes, 30 seconds, throw your arms up and you air, whoo! and you get done and they take your picture and sell it to you for 10 bucks and your friend says hey you want you want to do it again and you're like oh I don't know day's about gone now I don't know if we have time to stand in line that long again or not perspective isn't it perspective do we just spend our money on things that help us enjoy life, and go to the ball game, ride on that ride, or, or do we spend some of that money on building organizations and institutions and communities that will flourish, communities that are built and designed to reach people that don't know Jesus Or to take people that do and draw them closer to Jesus. To plant seeds that's going to lead them to eternal life in heaven. Two questions to ask. Number one, first question. Is this a valid expression of our love for Christ? Is it a valid expression of our love for Christ? Because if it's done in the name of Jesus Christ, then it demands our best. Nothing bothers me any more than somebody talking about or doing something and is like, yeah, this is for, in the name of Jesus, this is for Jesus. Yeah, it's mediocre, but it Really? I don't think Mary thought that when she went to get that jar. And I don't think that's the way Jesus received it. Second question, is this the only expression of our generosity? I, I mean, how do we reach people? I mean, if the only thing we're going to do is build a building and we're not having a vision to reach people and the whole design of the building isn't to draw people to Christ, then we're only going to end up with a museum someday. What are you doing with it? What's the vision? What's the goal? What's the ministry? And will that be pleasing to Jesus? How do we reach people? You see, the difference between Judas and Mary was this. Motive and heart. Judas had a motive for what he wanted to do with the money. Mary had a heart for what was right and pure. Number three, Jesus' acceptance of Mary's extravagance surprised Judas. It surprised him. It took him off guard. He, he, he wasn't ready for what happened. I mean, now think back and in your mind know that he has probably already had some conversations about turning Jesus over to the authorities and betraying him. Hadn't done it yet, but you know those conversations have taken place and he's considering it, right? Right? And then Jesus says this, Mark 14, verse 9, later in the story in Mark, it says this, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's how Jesus took it. That's how Jesus accepted it. So what's the applications for us? Real quickly, three applications, and then I'll quit. First application is this. Be reluctant to judge the extravagance of others. Go, so, But we did it with the weddings, did we not? We, we kind of fell right into that trap. We did the exact same thing. But let me give you an example and, and, and so that we can kind of think about it like this. Let's just say that um, I have a relative... Hardly even know, but a relative dies and leaves Sandy and I a million dollars. All right, let's just stop for a moment and take that in because it's never going to happen. But leaves us a million dollars, and we pray about it and we talk about it and we decide, you know what? We're going to give seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars away to all of the minister, our church, and the ministries we're involved in. This school, the uh, the United Way, just my brother's uh, church up in Indiana- Indianapolis. Just all, let's give seven, three quarters of it. Let's give away. And Sandy, let's let's take two hundred and fifty thousand of it and do some stuff we've never done. Let's go take a trip. Around the world. Let's buy us a couple vehicles. You know, maybe ones that we never dreamed that we could really even have. You know what's going to happen? You're going to see our vehicle sitting in our driveway. And you're going to hear about the trip that we took. But you don't see all the other things. You don't know the story behind the story. And that was Judas's problem. Judas doesn't know Mary. Judas didn't have all the pieces to the puzzle. We know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus probably were huge supporters of the ministry. They were at least generous to Jesus in the ministry if you study the Gospels. But Judas... Judas makes a statement based on something that he sees, but he didn't know the whole story. Be reluctant to judge the extravagance of others. Number two, application. Be receptive to the generosity of others. I don't know how many times, and you guys do it, and people are trying to be nice, but how many times someone offer something maybe maybe you go out for a meal and one couple wants to buy the other's meal and it's almost it almost gets into a fight no you're not you're not give that give it here give it here you're not doing it don't steal the blessing from somebody wanting to do that be receptive to the generosity from others when somebody's generous you don't want to rob them of that blessing number 3 be responsive to the opportunities for love to be expressed 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 reads, Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, don't do it reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When we were young and in, in a youth group, um, our youth group did some traveling, did a musical thing as we would travel and do stuff, and and uh, there was a time when uh, Sandy sang a song on one of our tours That said, so I guess it all comes down to where your heart is. There your thoughts, feelings, all begin. And the Bible tells us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, God's not only interested in what we do, he's interested in why we do it. Gordon MacDonald, in his book, Generosity, and we'll close with this, Gordon MacDonald, in his book entitled Generosity, wrote this. He said, The value of Mary's gift revealed a level of unbridled devotion. Mary offered not only her treasure to the Lord, but also her public commitment. Her actions made it clear that Jesus was her Lord and that by her actions she wanted everyone to know her life was in his hands. He went on to say this, In a world both then and now that is often obsessed with techniques and ideologies Mary is a refreshing woman she did what others only talk about she walked her talk her love for the Lord had no limits what she had what she was what she could do everything was given to Jesus That's authentic. That's authentic. And so, as we go through this series and we're in in the middle of this campaign, just know and understand the vision of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to accomplish. It's not about a building. We know that 85% of people that choose to follow the Lord do so before the age of 18. Research will tell you that. We know that a young person spends 16,380 hours in a classroom with teachers during the lifespan of kindergarten through grade 12. And we know that this church has the biggest ministry, daily ministry, taking place that's anywhere around us in this community. So let's thrive. Let's build a community that is built to flourish. Let's pray.